Uh, happy Thanksgiving to everybody except the Ohio State Buckeye fans. Uh, are there any of you in here? <laughs> uh, that made my weekend. So uh, have you ever been uh, at a great Thanksgiving table that you just didn't want it to end? Like maybe this last weekend, who had family in town? Anybody have family in town? Who had a great time with their family? Most of the hands went down, so okay. Um, <laughs> great time with your family. And you kind of have a moment where you're like, man, I just, I just don't want this to end. Like you ever feel that way? Or, or, or take a trip. Uh, Jen and I recently got to go uh, to Chicago. Thanks, man. And um, got to go to, to Chicago and, uh, oh, I forgot all my stuff. All right, well, <laughs> it's gonna be a good morning. Um, uh, are, we, are we in the Bible today? Okay, just checking. Um, uh, but I got to see the sunset in Chicago, which I told you I love sunsets, and uh, we got to go do, I, I run so I can live to see 60 or 70. Jen runs because she enjoys it, but we got to run in Chicago on the Riverwalk, and it was just a really, really cool trip. And, and Tuesday night before we left to come home, we both were sitting there eating dinner, and we're going like, man, I just don't want this to end. Like, it's just this really cool experience, and you're reminded of the reality that's like on the other side of that, like going home and uh, the responsibilities here. And we have to remind ourselves and things like that, that like we actually have a great life to come home to. I'm not saying I don't enjoy life here and love what we do. And I do love my kids. And, uh, but, but, but at the same time, you're in those moments, you're like, man, I just, I'm having such a good time. I don't want this to end. And that's where we left the disciples, Peter, James, and John, a couple of weeks ago. We're in Matthew chapter 17. Uh, if you don't know the story of where we've been for the last few years, we've been walking through the book of Matthew. Matthew is a, a, a letter written to a Jewish audience, and it's written to establish that Jesus is the king, that this is his kingdom, that he is the king and he possesses absolute authority. And so Matthew's written that, and we've walked through uh, three of the main teaching pillars found in the book of Matthew. And we're in Matthew chapter 17. Last two weeks ago, we looked at the Mount of Transfiguration, where Peter, James, and John are up on the mountain with Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, like three, uh, three Jesus, and then these two really titans of the Old Testament. And Peter says, let's just stay here. Like Peter says, this is such an incredible experience. Why would we go back down? He says, Jesus, I'll build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and we can all just hang here. And it's one of those moments where they're like, this is a trip. I don't want to end. This is a Thanksgiving meal. I don't want to end. But yet Jesus reminds them that the mission doesn't happen on the mountain. The mission happens down in the valley. And so he says, we, we've got to go back down. And in Matthew 17, verse 14, we're going to pick up where we left off. It says, at the foot of the mountain, a large crowd was waiting for them. A man came and knelt before Jesus and said, Lord, have mercy on my son. He has seizures and suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. So I brought him to your disciples but they couldn't heal him. So immediately, there's this sense of just back to reality. Like they've experienced this mountaintop moment, this image of what's to come, of what true reality looks like. But for them, the, the temporal reality, they're immediately reminded of the brokenness that exists in the world around them. And they come down the mountain and the crowds are waiting for them. And you kind of get the sense, maybe the other nine disciples, because it says they couldn't heal this boy, you kind of get the sense that maybe the other nine disciples are kind of like, guys, while you're up there living your best life, like we're here in the brokenness. It kind of reminds me as parents when our kids were young and like one of us would go away, moms and dads, you know what that's like? Like he goes away on a guy's trip or like she goes out with her friends for the evening and 
you're like, man, you're having the time of your life. I hope you're having a great time. But like, as dads, especially, we're like, we're just here trying to keep the kids from burning the house to the ground. And so the other nine disciples are like, yeah, like great experience for you, but this is what you left us in. This is what we were, this is what we've been experiencing. And so they get down the mountain and this man comes and kneels before Jesus, which was a posture of humility and a posture of worship. And he says to Jesus, have mercy on my son. He has seizures and suffers terribly. He often falls or other uh, translations say throws himself. Whatever he was experiencing was causing him to throw himself into fire or into water. And so you get the sense of a, of a dad that's desperate. Like understandably so, like as a parent, like if this, were, if this were my child, I would be doing anything and everything in my power to help them. And he brings this, his sick child to the disciples thinking that they could do it. They can't, and so now they wait for Jesus. Jesus comes down the mountain, and the man says to Jesus, in a posture of humility and worship, please have mercy on my son. Verse 17, it says, Jesus said, you faithless and corrupt people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Then Jesus rebuked the demon in the boy, and it left him. From that moment, the boy was well. So Jesus' initial response seems Pretty, pretty harsh, like, man, you guys just go out on a, have, live in a great vacation, and now you come back, and you're, like, he's in a bad mood, like, right away, like, what's going on? We've got to understand, and we've looked at this as we've walked through Matthew, remember the things that have happened in Matthew 11 and 12, if you were with us when we talked about that, that's the chapter, that's the line in the sand moment of the book of Matthew, where the nation of Israel has rejected Jesus as the Messiah. They're saying, you're not the king, you're not the guy. And so Jesus, immediately, there's a, there's a shift that takes place when we move into chapter 13 as Jesus begins to do his ministry differently. And so he knows that they've already rejected him. This is the same crowd. The same crowd that said, you're not the guy, or the same crowd that's there to watch to see what Jesus is gonna do. And so he understands that they don't believe in him. They're constantly opposing what he's doing, but yet they still show up to watch him perform miracles and entertain them. Also, if you remember the previous demonic encounter Jesus had where he'd perform what's known as one of the messianic miracles when Jesus cast out a mute demon, uh, about, a little bit about demon possession. We talked about this, so I'm not gonna deep dive into it. But demons had to be called by name in order to be exercised. Well, a person who was mute couldn't speak and couldn't, the, de the demon couldn't say its name. But Jesus uh, exercised absolute authority by saying, I don't need to know your name. I'm simply casting you out. And the last time that happened, Jesus was accused of being empowered by Satan. And so here you see Jesus' reaction. Jesus' reaction is showing us that the miracles he's doing is no longer about establishing his authority. He says, I've already done that. For the first half of the book of Matthew, I did these miracles. I did the messianic miracles. I checked the boxes. Only the Messiah could check. And now you chose to reject me. And so now things are changing. It's no longer about performing miracles to establish authority, it is now performing miracles in response to belief and faith of the people that are coming to him. This miracle was not about the crowds. It was not about the religious leaders. This miracle was simply about the belief of this man. And so Jesus rebukes this demon. <clears throat> the boy is healed. And the disciples should have been able to do it, but they couldn't. And in verse 19, it says, afterwards, the disciples asked Jesus privately, why couldn't we cast out the demon? Now, now I think this is a, a really significant verse. I think this is really important in the story of what Matthew's written to this point. 
Because keep a few things in mind. Any other time prior to this when the disciples weren't able to do something or something had to be addressed, it was not the disciples going to Jesus to be corrected. It was Jesus going to the, to the disciples to, to confront and to correct them. It was often Jesus bringing it up. These guys oftentimes lacked self-awareness. They were oblivious to their own deficiency and brokenness, and Jesus would often have to point this out to them. But I think in fairness to them, it's important to keep in mind, these guys were not, when we think of the disciples, we picture these guys with, you know, with beards and they're, you know, maybe in their 30s or 40s. These guys were likely teenagers. These were boys that were following Jesus, and Jesus is, is preparing them to lead the greatest movement the world would ever see, the advancement of the gospel in the first few centuries. And so these guys now, something is, is happening. We've seen it throughout the last few chapters as Jesus is constantly pointing the disciples back to their source. Like the feeding of the 5,000, we talked about that. That was never about the 5,000. That was always about the, the 12, pointing them back to their source. Who are you relying on? And so now when they can't do it, rather than doing what most of us would do, which would be make excuses or maybe blame each other, uh, think about the nine disciples that were left down with the crowds. Like if I were one of them, I might've been blaming Jesus. Like, if you'd have been here, we wouldn't be embarrassed. If you'd have been here, this wouldn't have happened. But they don't make excuses. They don't blame each other. They don't avoid the difficult conversation. Instead, they dive headfirst into it and say, Jesus, we did something wrong. Show us what it is. Now, these guys had followed Jesus long enough to know that Jesus' response wasn't going to be, ah, don't worry about it. We'll get him next time. They knew very well that Jesus was going to confront their brokenness. They knew that Jesus was going to say something to them that was going to be difficult to hear and difficult to receive. And it's interesting for me because when I read this verse, I ask myself the question, am I, do I have that same posture when it comes to my own pursuit of Jesus? Like, am I making excuses? Do I blame others? Do I avoid difficult conversations? Or am I self-aware? Am I teachable? Am I looking to grow? Am I allowing people access and permission to say difficult things to me? Am I willing to have conversations with others that may hurt in the moment, but in the long run, I know we're both better for them? And it's taken a long time for the disciples to get to that point, but we're starting to get a glimpse into ultimately the leaders that these guys were gonna become. As they said, Jesus, we couldn't do it. And instead of avoiding it, they said, tell us, tell us why, tell us what was wrong. So in verse 20, Jesus says, you don't have enough faith, Jesus told them. I tell you the truth. If you had faith even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it would move. Nothing would be impossible. So he says, you don't have enough faith, which, which on the surface is pretty straightforward and pretty simple. Just believe more, and it would have happened. Now, the context here is, is really important, and so we're gonna talk about this for uh, the majority of the time that, that we're in this this morning, because I, I wanna make sure we don't miss this. Without context, we walk away falsely believing that if we just have enough faith, good things will happen. Like, that's, that's what we've convinced ourselves. There, there are entire teachings built around this. Like, name it and claim it. If you just say it out loud and believe in faith, God's going to give it to you. Like, if you just have enough faith, God's going to heal. That if, if, you just, if you just believe that the reason God isn't healing your sick loved one or isn't healing you is because you don't have enough faith. And if you pull this verse, these two verses out without any context, you could, see, you could see where it sounds like that's what Jesus is saying. 
But you have to take into consideration the context of what's happened previously and also why Jesus is saying and what he's actually saying to them. Because he's, he's not telling them just blindly, if you believe, anything can happen. And so, so, so let's talk about this a little bit. It says, Jesus says you don't have enough faith. First thing you got to ask is faith in what? Like faith needs a source. Faith does not exist by itself. Uh, faith is like a kitchen appliance. It's like, it's like a toaster. You have a toaster in your kitchen. Uh, without power, it's just a nice place to hold bread. Like it's not actually going to toast anything, right? It needs a source. Faith is the same way. We place our faith in something or someone, and it's that something or someone that possesses the power. So if I place my faith in myself, if I believe that I'm the one that can control whatever is going on around me, then I'm relying on myself and I'm relying on my own ability. This is where most of us spend the majority of our lives. There's this constant tension between relying on myself and instead choosing to surrender control of all of my life under the lordship of Jesus. And we're constantly wrestling with that tension. If I place my faith in the government, which is what a lot of us do, then it's the power of the government we're depending on to help us and Think about this, when the government system is what we want, we feel good and God's sovereign and he's in control. And when it's not the system we want, then we question where he is, if he's gone to sleep, if he's forgotten about us, if he's moved on, right? So if I put my faith in myself, then I'm relying on myself. Government, then I'm relying on the government. But I put my faith in Jesus, then I'm relying on his power and his power alone. So with that said, think about what happened in Matthew chapter 10 when Jesus sent out the 12. One of the things he said to them was I give you authority over demons. That's critical to this conversation. He says, I've given you authority to do something. He says, you lack faith in me, but you lack faith in me in order to accomplish something I've already told you that you can do. Like if Jesus tells you that he is going to do something, you can be certain and live with confidence that he's gonna do what he said he's gonna do. Like those are promises in scripture, things that we can cling to and go, I know how this is gonna turn out because Jesus has already told me. Here's the problem with faith for the majority of our life. The majority of our life is not lived in the known, it's lived in the unknown. So what do I do with all of the things that I'm not sure what God is saying? That I'm not sure, like God didn't tell me he's gonna heal my relative. I believe he possesses the, the absolute authority. I believe he possesses the power to do it, but God didn't tell me he's gonna do it. So how do we function in in those places. And so with these guys, he says, your issue with faith is that you stop believing in me and the authority that I've already given you and you started to trust in your own power. And, and listen, I, I, like, I get it, I'm with them. Like if Jesus showed up today and was like, Jared, here you go, you've got authority to, to, uh, to just start healing people. Like at first I'd be healing in the name of Jesus, but within a few hours I'd get pretty puffed up about it and all of a sudden I'd be healing in the name of Jared. Like it would just, it would just kind of happen. Yeah. And so these disciples are doing something in the name of Jesus, but they're seeing these results. And what is natural and happens to all of us is we slowly forget over time that it's the authority of Jesus and we start to put our faith in something else. And for them, maybe it was themselves, maybe it was just the power to heal. And Jesus says, you've got faith but you've got faith in the wrong thing. And he says, you don't even need a lot of faith in order to do what I've already told you you can do. He says, if you have faith, the grain of a mustard seed, that you can move mountains. He says, if you have faith in the right thing, 
you can accomplish great things. Now, moving mountains, that's a figure of speech. That's, that's not literal. I just recently went to Grandfather Mountain, and it's like my new favorite place to go in North Carolina. Jesus is not saying that, I, that he would give me power to move geography. Like, I can't pick up Grandfather Mountain and put it in my backyard here in Clayton. Like, if I could, I would. I believe God could do that, but God, that's not what he's talking about here. It's a figure of speech that rabbis used often in teaching. It was a, a statement that they would use to describe overcoming difficulties. He says, if you had enough faith, if you had faith the grain of a mustard seed, which is what rabbis taught, you would be able to accomplish what, you, what to you seems like a mountain casting out demons, but what, but what is authority and power I've already given you. If you just believed in me, if your faith was in me, you would have been able to do what I've already told you that you can do. But it sounds a little bit like Jesus is saying to us and to the disciples that all we need for life is just a little bit of faith. Like just have this little bit of mustard seed faith, like whether you're a believer for five minutes or 50 years, that's, that's all you need. But the point that Jesus is making is that that's where our faith starts, but that's not where our faith ends. The mustard seed was the smallest of all garden seeds, but the mustard tree was the largest of all garden trees. Over time, it would grow from something small and insignificant to become the largest tree of all of the garden trees. In Mark chapter 4, verses 30 through 32, it talks about it. Jesus says, how can I describe the kingdom of God? What story should I use to illustrate it? It is like a mustard seed planted in the ground. It is the smallest of all seeds, but it becomes the largest of all garden plants. It grows long branches, and bird can make, birds can make nests in its shade. Uh, we've actually got a picture here of this picture, this tiny little seed. Uh, look at all those. I don't know those are deer or whatever those things are. What are those, gazelles, something? I don't know. Any hunters in here? Um, uh, we're in Johnston County. Never mind. Um, <laughs> But so look at that thing. So that tree is probably about 20 feet tall. Some interesting facts about it. Uh, the, the stalk of a, or the roots of a mustard tree grow three times as fast as the stalk. So that means what you can see, there's three times as much of that tree that is in a root system beneath the ground, which comes back to Matthew chapter 12 when we talk about root to fruit, like that we're focusing on our behavior and Jesus is going, no, I'm trying to do a work that's going down deep into the roots of your life, that ultimately what is happening in here is going to overflow into what happens in our lives. And so there's this incredible root structure that you can't see. But then it says that this tree not only is beneficial for what it's planted for, but also it's a benefit to others, to these animals that find shade in it. And so what Jesus is saying to them and to us about our faith is that our faith in him can help us endure and at times overcome difficulties it can give us courage to face whatever the next yes holds for us, but also that it can be a benefit to others as well. Like just how that tree is a benefit to those around it, just think for a second that your faith and my faith in the face of uncertainty can be exactly what someone else needs to face their own. And so I wanna take a minute, I wanna dig a little bit deeper into the word faith because I think faith is a word we all know. It's a word we all use but it's a word that our understanding is limited. For us, faith is just about belief. Like, that's it. Like, we, we've reduced faith to belief. Uh, I'll give you an example. Several years ago, my wife and I were in Boston, and we wanted to go see a Red Sox game. We didn't have tickets, so we're like, it's 2004, the year they won the World Series, and uh, we're like, we're just going to show up, and we're just going to buy tickets from a scalper. And it uh, sounded like a great idea at the time. Um, 
And so we're there, and like, there's no, the tickets are ridiculous. Like, they're just like outrageous prices. And, uh, and I look up, and I see this sign, and it's David Ortiz, and it says, just have faith. And I said to Jen, I was like, that's the word for us. Now, we did get tickets, so it's kind of going to kind of kill the point. But, um, but, uh, but for us, that's what we've reduced faith to, that we're going to get tickets if we just have faith. Uh, that if we just believe, God's going to heal our loved one. That if I just believe enough, I'm going to get that promotion. And here's, the, here's the, one of the problems with that. For most of us in here, we've believed something and we've prayed for something. If I ask you to raise your hand, how many of you have had a loved one or someone you care about that was sick that you prayed for and you believed with all your heart that God could heal them and they died? If I asked you to raise your hand, there are a number of hands that would go up in here. But then how many of us, even though we know that that's not biblical, have still asked ourselves the question, maybe if I just believed a little bit more? And we've got a jacked up belief about what faith is. And so I think we've got to understand it because Hebrews 11:6 6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So we know faith is important to God. So let's talk about it a little bit. There are two key components of faith. Uh, number one is intellectual assent or belief, which we all, that's, that's where most of us reduce faith to. But the second part of biblical faith is not just intellectual assent or belief, it's, it's trust that leads to a response. You could really say believing and responding. Intellectual assent is when we believe the facts about something. Like this stool, I would tell you this stool uh, can hold me. Uh, I've done my research, which is basically uh, pick it up out there and bring it over here. Uh, I've sought God, like God, will the stool hold me? I believe it will. Like you sought counsel from others, but on a, a major decision, you've gathered the information that you can gather. And with the information in hand, we believe, even if we can't fully prove it. But it's one thing to believe that a stool like this can hold you, it's another thing to sit on it and go, no, I don't just believe the stool can hold me. I know it can, and hold, it can hold me because I've sat on it, right. right? And so there's a difference between just believing and actually responding. And in the first half of faith, belief is critically important. That's the measure that God gives to every one of us. But belief has to translate into a response in order to be real faith. And for most of us, we live our lives in the intellectual ascent part of faith, and we fail to take steps of faith. But faith isn't faith until it becomes active. And as you read through the Bible, story after story, you see people go to Hebrews chapter 11 or read all throughout the Old Testament. You read all of these stories about people like Abraham, like Moses, like Noah, that were known and defined by their faith. What was it about their faith that was significant? It wasn't that they believed that God was everything he said he was and could do everything he said he could do. For Abraham, Abraham didn't become the father of faith until he uprooted his wife and they left their family and everything they knew and said yes to pursuing God wherever God would take him. Noah was not defined by his faith until he built the ark. Moses was not defined by his faith until he stepped out and went back to Egypt where he knew they wanted him dead in order to confront Pharaoh to release the nation of Israel. What made their faith strong was not belief alone. It was acting on that belief. Faith is not just believing. Faith is responding regardless of the outcome. Listen, faith is not just sitting under the teaching of Jesus and nodding our heads in agreement. 
It's not just saying amen. It's not just highlighting some verses in a Bible or tweeting a, a, a clever quote. Faith isn't faith until it responds, until it takes action. Faith is trusting enough to walk in obedience. And when we say yes and take the next step, regardless of what the next step is and regardless of what the next yes may hold for us, knowing and believing that God is everything he says he is and can do everything he says he can do. Faith is belief, but it's also response. Bonhoeffer said that faith is like two pedals on a bike. You can get somewhere with only using one pedal, but you're gonna use a lot of energy and you're not gonna get there very fast. But he said faith and belief are the, the two pedals on this bike where God gives us a measure of faith. When you say yes to following Jesus, scripture teaches all of us have at least a small measure of faith. I believe, like God gives me some things to believe in. As I believe, I then am presented with an opportunity to respond. Well, as I respond, all of a sudden I look back, maybe not right in the moment, but I look back two, three, four, five years later and I go, oh my goodness, I can see how God was ordering those steps. And as I respond, my belief grows. As my belief grows, I respond more and it becomes this natural cyclical progression as we move forward as followers of Jesus, not just simply believing, but responding. Faith is believing that he is everything he says he is and will do everything he says he will do. And then it's respond, and then in responding by aligning my life accordingly in joyful submission and obedience to him, regardless of the outcome. Regardless of the outcome is where, uh, is where faith really gets tough. See, if the outcome's good, we're excited. Have you ever noticed that, man? You got the promotion and you're, you're tweeting or your social media, like, man, thankful God is sovereign. But then you don't get the job and then we're silent. Did God's sovereignty change based on whether or not we got the job? In our eyes, it did. Like when things are going good in my life, then God is on the throne and he is in control and I am celebrating and worshiping him and all honor and glory goes to him. And then when things take a turn for the worse when the outcome isn't the outcome I want, all of a sudden I'm questioning, why, why have you abandoned me? Faith is trusting him regardless of the outcome. Sometimes the outcome is the outcome we want. Hebrews 11 tells stories in there about guys who overthrew kingdoms, shut mouths of lions, quenched flames of fire, escaped death by the edge of the sword, Receive loved ones back from the dead. Like, sign me up for that. I'm all in on that. But the very next verse talks about how some of these same people were tortured. They were beaten. They were imprisoned. Forced to hide in caves. And even some of them were killed. So some were sawn in half. Like, the first few verses of that, I'm like, yeah. I could be down for that. The next few, I don't know. But faith is trusting that he is everything he says he is and will do everything he says he will do and responding in obedience regardless of the outcome. I've shared this story with, uh, with some of you, but when we started uh, Generation several years ago, I was dealing with um, some pretty significant health issues and God was using that at the time uh, to grow my faith. I, don't, I wasn't aware of it then. 
But it got to the point where, uh, where I needed surgery. That was the only option. I'd tried a bunch of things. I'd tried uh, changing my diet. I'd done several things. And was just getting infection after infection after infection. And basically, the, the surgeon told me, your only option is uh, surgery by choice or emergency. And I was 100% opposed uh, to having that surgery. Part of the reason for me, some of the backstory, is my dad had had a similar procedure four years earlier and almost died. Uh, his bowels were leaking into his stomach for six days before they discovered it. If you're in the medical world, you know how bad that is. And uh, they kept him in the hospital for six weeks, and he was showing some signs of improvement, but not much. And they sent him home. And when they sent him home, my mom said, so what's next? Like, do we need to go get a prescription for more antibiotics? And I appreciate the honesty of the doctor. Um, but he said, well, no, there's nothing left. He's going to go home, and his body's going to fight this, or he's going to die. And my dad recovered from that, but, I mean, I, I watched all of that happen. And so I was like, no, I'm good. I don't want to do that. And so when they told me surgery was the only option, I said, well, I'm just going to pray about it. I'm just going to seek God. I started to pray. I started to fast. To pursue him in maybe to a level I had never pursued him before. And I can tell you, looking back now, I was 100% convinced without an inkling of doubt that God possessed the ability to heal me. There was no, it was impossible for me to believe it more. So we went away on a trip to Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and the first day that we were there, Jen and I together prayed, and we just said, we're just going to lay this at Jesus' feet for the week, declaring that he possesses absolute authority. He's the great physician, all, telling him all the things about him. And then I began to just ask him to heal. And I remember telling him one time, I'm like, I will shout it from the rooftops. Like, I will be as obnoxious about me being healed as a seven-year-old is when it's their birthday, making sure everybody knows that even if you think I'm crazy, I was healed. And so that week was really powerful for me. I began to listen, and the Holy Spirit began to speak. And I remember one day I just sensed him saying to me, do you believe I can heal you? And I, I remember being frustrated. Like, I've told you so many times, yes. Like, I've... I've prayed scripture. I've read the stories out loud. I've prayed them to you. I believe that you possess the ability to heal me. And then he said something <clears throat> on the heels of that within the next couple of days that I'll never forget. He said, but will you trust me if I don't? And I'll be honest with you, for me, that was the tougher of the two questions. For me, looking back, the, the miracle would have been easy. I believe God can heal me. He heals me. I tell everybody, I, that, that's the, that would have been the easy, easier of the two routes. But what I know now that I didn't know then was that my faith would have never grown if he had healed me. It was only going to grow as I faced what I didn't want to face. As I trusted him to walk a road that I didn't want to walk. You know, faith is about belief. But it's not just about belief, it's about response. Do you believe he's everything he says he can do? 
Or he's everything he says he is, he can do everything he says he can do? And are you responding every day in obedience and faith, saying yes to whatever the next yes is, regardless of the outcome, if it turns out the way you want, if it ends poorly, will you say yes? Will you continue to walk in faith? And then I wanna read as we close 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses nine and 10. Paul is the famous passage where he's asked to be healed. And then this is Jesus' response to him. He says, each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Some of you this morning right now, you are you're struggling. You've been praying, you're discouraged, you're hurting, you're asking God to do something in your marriage, with your health, at your job, with your kids, through a conflict, and you're believing that he has the power to fix it. And although he has the power to fix it, will you still trust him and move forward in obedience even if he doesn't? Because that's what faith does. Father, this morning, I pray over this room. I know there are those in here that are discouraged, they're weary. They may even feel let down by you. They're believing. And I pray regardless of the outcome, you'd give them the courage to continue to respond. To continue to say yes to the next yes, regardless of the outcome. Jesus, be glorified, we pray. It's in your name.